0: Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. As Brian said, we're thankful to be here and excited for this next season that uh, God has for GCC. So, welcome. We're actually starting a brand new series this morning, and it's, and, and it's titled and called The Gospel Gives Meaning. The Gospel Gives Meaning because we believe that the gospel gives meaning to life, that it gives purpose to life, and we believe that everyone in this room, Christian, non-Christian, atheist, agnostic, wherever you stand, wherever you're at, is searching for purpose, is searching for meaning, and we believe that the gospel provides the answer for that. So we're starting a brand new series, and we're going to be in a new book of the Bible, so I want to help you guys out. If If you do not have a digital app or a Bible that way, a Bible translation, and you actually have a hardback Bible, then what you'll do is you'll open to the middle of your Bible, and you'll be in the book of Psalms. And then if you hang a right from there, the next book over is gonna be Proverbs, and then the next book after that is gonna be Ecclesiastes, and we're gonna be in Ecclesiastes. Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. So not only are we all starting in a new building today, but we're all starting in a brand new book and a brand new series today. So if you're visiting with us, this is a great time to be here because none of us know what we're doing, so welcome. GCC has a fierce commitment, and our fierce commitment is this: make Jesus a hero and so what we 've said is that no matter where we go where our building goes i 'm thankful for the family and the community that 's right here because this is the church. the building is not the church, the family that 's right here is the church and so and what our church will stay committed to and fiercely committed to is the message, and that 's the message of the gospel so the the cross is folly to the world, and that 's the message that we 're going to keep preaching here and so if you 're new with us and you're wondering what we 're about, we're about, we are about this we 're about making Jesus the hero so Join us as we pray, and we'll dive in the word. Father, we thank you for this building. We thank you for Dave and Ryan and their hospitality. We thank you for the place that you've given us through your sovereign, perfect will and plan for us to get to preach and teach the gospel. Father, we don't need a production. We don't need a performance. What we need is a message that has the power to save and transform our lives, and that's a message you've given us through your word. We thank you that we serve a God who speaks, and we thank you that... We serve a God who stepped into humanity to give give and provide the rescue that we need that we could not do for ourselves. As a man preaching on contentment, I am not content and often not content in the everything that I have in Jesus. And as people sitting in this room, we find ourselves discontent. So through the gospel, make us content. I know there's people who are in this room whose lives have been turned upside down Who have health problems who have family members who have health problems who have lost jobs who are trying to get into schools there's a lot going on that makes us discontent and i we pray that your gospel this evening would give us true contentment we pray this in jesus name amen main point this evening is that the is that what we have and what we have in the gospel is this the gift of contentment so four things four words to remember Is that the gospel offers this the gift of contentment and what we want to talk about tonight is that the gift that we need and the gift that we are given and the gift that we receive in the gospel is the gift of contentment when i grew up we had a cat and i'm just going to lay all my cards out on the table with my feelings towards cats so i'm not i'm not a cat guy so don't necessarily understand them i i feel like you are willfully or Uh, paying for, inviting something into, it's like you're willfully paying for a teenager. It's like someone who's committed to not listen to you, come when you call, and not really provide or do much for your house. That would be my working definition of a cat. So not not a big cat guy, but if you are, no qualms here, so good for you. We had a cat growing up, and and its name was Pookie. So we named it Pookie, Because we couldn't pronounce Pookie, and so it came out Pookie, and so my mom thought that was cute, so we named our cat Pookie. So Pookie would do something every time he would climb into your lap, is Pookie would get on top of you, and then he would work his claws in for like, I don't know, it felt like eternity, but maybe it was like two minutes. And he could not get content, and he could not get settled, and so he would just keep working and working and working his claws, and he was not declawed, so he would just keep doing this and going in circles, and that's what he did. And he would do that for a couple minutes until he got content to just lay down. The reality is, is you see dogs, you see animals do this, but that's oftentimes what we look like. We are people who are discontent, we are people who have a hard time finding contentment, we are people that are constantly working and trying to do everything to find some sort of contentment. I believe that the gospel provides the answer that we're looking for, and I believe that the gospel provides the gift of contentment. And I would say it's so radical the gift that it provides that regardless of what is going on in your life, regardless of your circumstances. Whatever they may be, that the gospel actually provides something with whatever you're going through that you can actually have true contentment. Not something trite, but you can actually be content. Let's dive in and take a look at this. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Historically, people have believed that. Traditionally, that the book of Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. Some people, more, mod- more modern scholars, believe that, that he is an influencer and it was authored by someone else. I do hold to more of a traditional view that Solomon is the author, but at the end of the day, I don't think that it truly matters because I believe what J.I. Packer says is that the Bible is God preaching. So all of God's word is God's word preaching to us, and we should take all of God's word as that, is that he worked through flawed men to produce his words exactly the way that he wanted to communicate to us. So what exactly is Ecclesiastes? And, and, and honestly, I think a lot of people aren't that familiar with it. For a lot of people, it can kind of make you uncomfortable. It goes in wisdom literature. So that's what it's known as. We don't read wisdom literature the same way we, we would read a historical narrative like Genesis. We read it differently. We don't read a math book the same that we'd read a science book. We read it differently. What is it seeking to do? Wisdom literature is seeking to do this. It's seeking to answer the questions that all of us have about life and what is life like post-fall. So we believe that God created the world perfectly and then there was a fall of mankind. And so wisdom literature is seeking to answer a lot of these tough questions that we're all wrestling with. Like, what's the purpose and the meaning of life? How do you deal with this stuff on a day-to-day basis? It's seeking to do that. What Ecclesiastes more specifically is seeking to do, it's seeking to give us a jolt back into reality. It's going to jolt us back into the reality to see the world as it truly is. The world is not pretty. The world is messy. And the author is taking us and giving us a jolt back to seeing the world through the lens of what it really is. It's not clean and tidy and pretty. It's messy, incredibly. Wisdom literature uses Proverbs and pithy sayings and riddles and question and answer. It uses poetry. It uses all this stuff. Why? Because it's trying to get us to come at and look at things from a different angle from the way that we're used to doing it. And that's what Ecclesiastes is doing. That's what the author is trying to do. It's it's trying to take us to look at something from a different angle, from the way that we're used to looking at life. So then, why why would a guy like Solomon, if he did write it, choose to conceal his identity? I think that's a good question. But let me read you this. And you tell me who you might think the author would be. Talk to me about the truth of religion, and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion, and I'll listen submissively. But don't come to me talking about the consolations of religion, or I shall suspect that you don't understand. Meanwhile, where is God? Go to him when you're in need and and desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence." you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. Who wrote this? N.W. Clerk and his wife, H. Because he went by a pseudoname, he went by a hidden name. This was written by an author that many of you would like and an author that many of you would read who's, who's written some of the most famous books in Christianity called Mere Christianity, The Screwtape Letters. C.S. Lewis wrote this and he wrote it under a false identity, N.W. Clerk. In fact, you can go on Amazon and, and find it, and if you try to buy a copy under N.W. Clerk, you're going to pay about $70. I think that's the cheapest. If you find one, it's, it, 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 it's, a, it's a collector's item. But you can buy the $11 one. It's paperback. It says C.S. Lewis on it. Why would he do that? Because it is the most raw book that he wrote in a season of life of, of, of just desperation and despair and grieving and realizing that the world is not as pretty as he once thought. A book written later on in his life. In fact, many people don't even know that he wrote this book and they've never even heard of it. They've heard of all of his other books. A Grief Observed, never heard of it. One author says this, "What what is Ecclesiastes like? It's like this, God has not been afraid of transparency, mystery, emotion, appeals to nature, or familiarity with the beauties and messiness of people and things. The biblical uh, literature in general, and Ecclesiastes in particular, listen here, show us more of God than we perhaps know or are comfortable with. God wrote this. And it probably makes people uncomfortable because there's a rawness to it, there's a realness to it. And, and, And it makes us have to wrestle with some really difficult questions. But what it makes us wrestle with is this, is what are you finding your purpose worth and meaning in in life? And what are you looking for to try to make you content? This is is evangelistic too, because everyone in this room, no matter where you came in, no matter where you're at, we are all equal in this, that we are trying to make ourselves content, that we are trying to find something that gives us contentment, and we're looking everywhere in the world to do that. This is not new. This happened with creation. You have the fall. This is what happened. They started looking for things outside of God to give them contentment, and man has been doing that ever since. Verse 2, look here. So you have the start, you have a framework of Ecclesiastes, and then it starts off like this. Imagine I just get up in the pulpit this evening and I say this, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities. He's yelling, he's making this loud declaration, and he says, all is vanity. That's loud. That's loud. You guys, if you just came in and you were visiting, and and this is like the first time you ever came, and that's all I said. I stood up and I said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Some of you would be like, thanks for inviting me. (laughs) This guy's mad. This guy's crazy. And here's the thing. uh, I used to live in Reno, and I'd walk down the sidewalk, and someone was screaming and doing like martial arts motions and stuff like that. What would I do? I would move to the other side of the sidewalk. I wasn't going to interact and say, why are you screaming like that or anything like that? I just move. I don't interact with it. And oftentimes, we don't interact with literature like this. We don't even know how to interact with it. It's like a bad neighborhood. We simply avoid it. You get to Ecclesiastes, and you go, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Let's, let's go somewhere else. That's, that's dark. It starts off dark. He steps up in the pulpit, and he says that. He's not trying to be a Debbie Downer. What he's trying to do is make you open your ears and listen that, that, that what you're trying to gain control of in life will elude you. If you think that life is about you gaining control of, of, of the situation and the circumstances you're in, it will elude you. How do I know this? Because vanity actually translates hevel. What does hevel mean? It means smoke and vapor. So what he's actually screaming is smoke and vapor, smoke and vapor, everything is just smoke and vapor. Have you ever tried to grab smoke or vapor? You can grab it, but it just goes right through your fingertips. And when you seek to try to grab control of everything in life, and you try to maintain things and control things, what happens? You realize you don't have control. You don't have control of your health. You don't have control of your job. You don't have control of your kid's health. You don't have as much control as you would like to think you have. And I would say this, what he's trying to say, is that there's actually more freedom in life by starting to live life like this instead of like this. That's how it starts off. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Let's keep reading. It's not going to get better. I'm just letting you guys know. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. He goes on to say, what's man gaining? Most people in this room probably work. A lot of people have been working for a long time. But now what he's saying is this. He's like, vanity is vanity. Everything is vanity. And, And what he's doing... Again, he's going with the question. It's more rhetorical, but he's like, riddle me this. If you don't believe me, tell me what you've achieved by a sore back, tired hands, and being worn out. How's it worked out for you? You're exhausted. All this toil that you're doing in this life to try to uh, provide meaning and contentment, how's that working out for you? He's like, what does a man gain by it? What have you gained by it? He goes on to say that a generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. What's he saying? That in this life, it comes and goes so quickly. And here's the thing. The sun will be here when you die and so will the wind, and so will the earth. But most of them will not remember you. They'll keep going. The sun's going to be here, the earth is going to be here, the wind is going to be here, but you will long be forgotten. In fact, in 100 years, people probably won't know most of the people in this room ever existed. But you know what's crazy? is that you're trying with all your might to get the promotion, to get into the next school, to get the grades, to do everything that you can to try to find some meaning and purpose and worth and contentment in this life. And what he's saying is this, go right ahead, do it. You think you're the first one that's tried that? And then you know what you'll do, you'll, you'll die and you can just pass the baton on to the next generation, they'll come in and they'll do the same exact madness that you're all doing right now, that I'm doing. That's what he's saying. It's like you think this is new. You think you're the first person that's tried this. That that, that thought, if I can have the 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 better job, the the better promotion, the better school, the better career, and that's what you're fighting for. That's what school's all about. Getting to this career that all of a sudden you're grinding for every single day. All of a sudden your life is fading away, and you go, "This is what it's all about." And he's saying, "You you soon will be forgotten." He even tells us that creation's struggling. Look at verse 7. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. What is he saying? Creation's struggling too. After the fall, it impacted creation. Creation's not satisfied, it's not filled up, it's not content, it's hurting as well. We see that elsewhere. Paul talks about this, he uses the same kind of language. Do you know what I find crazy? is that we live life looking for the dream job, the house, the season of life, and and the vacation, that we put so much weight in all these things to make us content. What's crazy to me is this, is I think that we offer up our emotions too freely. I think we freely give our emotions, too easily. And here's what I mean. If someone hurts you, if someone hurts you, they lose your trust, and then it's hard for you to give yourself to that person again right? But here's the thing. Day after day after day, we give our lives to the created things, to work, to school, to all these things to try to give us contentment. Day after day, they let us down, but yet we continue to give our emotions to these things and say, here, c- keep letting me down. And we keep fully, freely giving ourselves the things that can't provide ultimate contentment to us. We wouldn't do that to another person, yet we'll do that to everything else in this life to try to give us contentment. The author is sobering us, is what he's doing. How? If you've ever been at a hospital when someone dies, you can read this in uh, A Man Named Ovi, uh, Ovi by Frederick Bachman. The scene paints it well in that book, too. But even at my dad's death, what you see is this is when someone dies in the hospital, they're instantly trying to make arrangements. Why? Because they need to get that body and that corpse out so they can get the next person in. That's what happens. It's a business, it's a machine. And right now, this person needs to be removed so the next person can come in. They might give you some time, but that's what needs to happen. And here's the thing, is after that person's gone, I watch it with my dad. People are like, man, loved your dad, one of the funniest guys, all this stuff. Is the world goes on. My dad retired and then literally got two other jobs. The world goes on, with or without us. That's what he's saying, just so you know. You're not the only one that thinks that this life revolves around you, that you're the one keeping this going. This has been something that people thought, and it's madness. It's crazy. It's vapor. It's smoke. Verse 8, what does he say? All things are full of weariness A man cannot utter it. Literally this, in the South, it's called being bone-tired, You're so tired, you can't even utter the fact that you are exhausted. And sometimes it's not even physically, it's emotionally. Then he says this, look here, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Why why is, even Tom Brady said this in an interview a while back, man with so many Super Bowls and Super Bowl rings, not content. Why is it that you run back to the same computer screen time and time again to look at something with your eyes to try to make you content, to try to satisfy you, but yet it fails to do it? You, you see things the author's saying, but your eyes is never satisfied. You hear things, but yet you're never satisfied. Why? Because the things out there, outside of God and what he's given, were never things that were meant to give us ultimate purpose and worth and meaning and contentment. I was at someone's house yesterday for a birthday party, and uh, they have uh, uh, a couple kids our age. Since he's not here, I'll just say his name. His name was Tommy. And, uh, they went skiing, I think, this last week or something before that. And I was like, man, how was it? Like, like taking the kids? How, how was it? Was it? And he was like, it was awful. It was, so, it was awful. It was my legs were fried. I was like, why? He's like, because I, I had to, like, put, put the one child between my legs and hold them while, like, snow plowing the whole way down the mountain. And he's like, and I was like, what happened? He's like, we got down the bottom called my parents and asked if they would come get the kids because they were done. And I was like, yeah, but did you get a really awesome picture for Enneagram? And he goes, you bet I did. It looked awesome to the rest of the world. That's, that's the life that we live. And then we see that stuff and we're like, if I had that, that would actually have the power to satisfy my life and make me content. And he's saying, look, the eye is never satisfied. The ears are never satisfied. We live in a world that is driven, stimulated by pictures. And Instagram, social media, that's what it does. And then what we do is we constantly look and go, that's got to be it. If I had that, if I was there, this would provide contentment. It's so nice to hear this. It's refreshing to hear to me that the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear uh, filled with hearing. Look at nine. What has been is... What will be and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. He's not saying that there's not new inventions. He's not saying that there's not iPhones, that there's not new buildings. He did build the temple. He's not saying these things. What is he saying? That, hey, nothing's new under the sun. All the same strategies that all of you guys are trying, that I'm trying, that all of us are trying. He's like, this has been the same thing always. This is how creations always respond. This is how creations always are. There's nothing new under the sun. Man has always attempted to try to find contentment in all these things. This is not new. There's nothing new under the sun. 10. Is there a thing of which it is said, "See, this is new," or it has been already in the ages before us? He's like, "There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after." We're trying the same things, but we're trying to do new things thinking that it's going to provide a different thing. That's why we're writing new books on marriage. That's why we're writing new uh, books on sex. That's why we're trying to create new sexual positions, providing the sexual life that's ultimately going to give us some ultimate satisfaction. We're creating new, new technology, new cars. We're getting new clothes. The problem is it's the same heart and soul that lies underneath all of that stuff that is still discontent, but yet we're trying it. He also was just saying, you're going to be forgotten. How many of you guys know who Paul McCartney is? You don't have to raise your hand. Oh, thank you. Like, but if, if that was any like, uh, gauge on it, then uh, there was one. Cool. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he played in a band. Maybe you've uh, heard of it. It's called the Beatles. But do you know that most of our generation, or the young, younger generation, doesn't even know who he is? Even a lot of junior high students probably don't even know what 9-11 is. The guy I was hanging out with yesterday at the party, let me see if I have it here. His name was Tommy Skipper. Maybe a couple of you guys in the room know him. Most of you I would venture to say probably don't. But I was like, I'm gonna look him up because I heard he was a pretty accomplished athlete. I think that's an understatement, it says this. Uh, it's talking about him. Uh, Tommy returns to, uh, to duck fold for a senior season in 2006 and 2007 as Oregon's second ever four-time NCA champion, followed the lead of distance uh, great Steve Prefontaine. Goes on to say all of his other accomplishments, including that I think he set the indoor Oregon record as a freshman for pole vault. Did a lot of cool stuff. Here in town, most of you probably don't know him, never heard of him. Most athletes and celebrities, even of our age, even 10, 20 years ago, you can't mention their names. I think silence is the right response that's what he's trying to do he's trying to sober us to go this is the reality the other thing he's trying to say is this most of us in this room live for the god of happiness you woke up this morning and you put on clothes or you got warm because it makes you happy you ate food because it makes you happy maybe you got in the shower maybe you stayed in the shower longer because you have kids and that makes you happy I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's, it, it, it's probably uh, just a realistic thing. But, but may, maybe you came to service this morning because it makes you feel good and that makes you happy. The reality is is that we live in a world where we constantly do everything to make us happy. And I'm not saying happy is a bad thing. I'm saying that's just a really bad God. Even marriage is not intended for happiness. It's intended for holiness where we get messed up is that we think it's all about happiness. We think life is all about happiness, and that's what we live for. We live for the God of happiness. If my spouse is happy, if my wife is happy, if, if my kids are happy, if all this is happy, that's what we live for, happiness. What does he say? We're gonna jump down. Remember, it's God speaking. That's verse 13. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out. By wisdom, all that is done under heaven, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. What what else does he say? He said, I've seen everything under the sun, and behold, all of it is vanity, striving after the wind. He says that what's crooked cannot be straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What else does he try? Look here. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is a striving after the wind. What's he saying? This Solomon was the wisest guy. He was also the wealthiest of his time. What's he saying? That he humbled himself and, and, and he did something for us. It's very helpful. He's like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to search the world and see if there's something out there that is able to, pro- to provide contentment. I'm going to humble myself as a very wise, smart, and wealthy man. I'm just going to go out and search it out. And here's why it's helpful. When, when you talk to people who have tried stuff, who have tried relationships, who, who have fallen in sin, who have tried all these things, I've yet to see someone as a pastor come back and go, man, that's what did it for me. That's what made it really worth it. And he's like, I went out and I tried it all. And you know how he ends is this. I even got all the degrees. I lined my walls with degrees, in a sense, is what he's saying. And knowledge and wisdom, it did not do it. Why? Because at the end of the day, I am no different than the man who never graduated high school. I try to climb the academic ladder in a sense, but I still have the same heart and same soul inside of me. I cry the same tears, I have the same longings, and I'm still not content. All right, that's it. We'll wrap up there. <laughs> in a sense, that's how, the, that's how the chapter ends. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge and What's he saying? The longer you live, here's what he's saying: the longer you live, the more you'll understand because you're going to gain more knowledge. You'll see that actually everything is hevel, it's vanity, it's smoke, it's vapor. Stick around, you'll see. And that's it's kind of how he ends. We won't end that way. Thankfully, we live on this side of the cross and of the resurrection. We know where to look because we get to look back. They were looking forward. I'm going to read this brilliant, what I think is just a well-said quote by David Gibson, because I think it helps speak to this. Let's pretend, he says. In a sense, chapter 1 is about pretending. Let's pretend that if we get the promotion or see our church grow or bring up good children, we'll feel significant and leave a lasting legacy behind us. Let's pretend that if we change jobs or immigrate to the sun... We won't experience a humdrum tedium of, ordinary, uh, of the ordinariness of life. Let's pretend that if we move to a new house, we'll be happier and never want to move again. Let's pretend that if we end the relationship that we're in and start a new one, we won't ever feel trapped. Let's pretend that if we're married or weren't married, we would be content. Let's pretend that if we had more money, we would be satisfied. Let's pretend that if we get through this week's pile of washing and dirty diapers and laundry and shopping lists and school runs and busy evenings, next week will be quieter. Let's pretend that time is always on our side to do the things we want to do and become the people we want to be. Let's pretend we can break the cycle of repetition to finally arrive in a world free of weariness. What does he say? We long for change in a world of permanent repetition. And we dream of how to uh, interrupt it. Why? Because we don't know how to make sense and find contentment in the ordinary, everyday stuff of life. So we have to constantly look for an extraordinary moment a vacation, something else, the dream job, whatever it is, something else must be the thing that's going to provide the contentment for me that I need. If you were going to write something down, I would encourage you to write this down. Life in God's world is a gift, not gain. Life in God's world is a gift, not gain. And what the gospel does is it doesn't make the vanity go away. It just makes the mundane, ordinary stuff enjoyable. The stuff that actually all of life consists of. It makes it enjoyable. How does it do that? Well, let's start with Jesus. I think that's a great place to start and end with. Christ is God. One of the members of the Godhead. What did he do? Well, he picked his own parents. That's the cool thing about being God. When you're going to come to earth, you get to pick the parents you want. And he picked very ordinary parents. He also got to pick his job. What did he do? He picked a very ordinary job, a blue-collar job as a carpenter. What else did he do? He got to pick his friends. But ultimately, what did he do? He found contentment. Why? Because contentment was not something out there that he could get his hands on. Contentment was something that was in here that it possessed with him and his relationship with his father. It wasn't something to be grabbed hold of and clenched onto. It was something that he already possessed. Even before he started his ministry, which is incredible, it was extraordinary. God the Father said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Identity first and then his works afterwards. It was never go and do this stuff and then you'll be my son with whom I am well pleased. It started there. What else contentment is not something that we reach out to and grab a hold of us grab hold of it is something that we possess here's what i mean i won't make you turn there but i'm going to read some passages the the first one is from first timothy six six through seven you guys can look later you can even do a word study on this if you want listen to this but godliness with contentment But godliness with contentment is great gain. What's the word for contentment? Atar That's what it is. Atar That is the word for contentment in the Greek. This is where the Greek is is so important. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. What is the, the word there? It's a noun and it's a genitive noun. What does that mean? That it is a possessive noun. Contentment here is something that we actually possess. It's something that we have ownership of. It's something that's ours. The same word, Atar Ka'ah, is used again in Second Corinthians nine, seven nine. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all contentment, all sufficiency, all atar ka'ah in the world, in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Same word. It's a noun. The problem is, is that when we think about contentment, what we think is something that we need to do and something that we need to grab hold of, not something that we possess as a child of God. Contentment is a gift. It is a gift of God. He's given us the gift of contentment. How else do I know this? Paul, we're looking at the writing of Paul. Paul does not use verb literature. or uh, I'm sorry, he does not use verbs. He's not saying, here's what you do. He, he says that one time, and we'll get there. He uses an adjective in Philippians, a case is the word that's used there. What does he say? He says this, not that I'm speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He's saying here, I have learned to be content. Content describes, it's an adjective here, it describes who I am. When I'm, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Again, what was said before is that I have, have all it says contentment and here contentment describes what he has so what does that mean for us it means this you need to hear this if you're a child of god please stop searching for contentment as though it's something to find out in the world that you need to go and grab hold of that's not how it works literally as a child of god when when you receive christ when you put your trust and faith in Christ then what we understand is this, that on the cross, Christ got everything that we deserve. What he supplied to us was an infinite surplus of righteousness. It wasn't like, here's enough righteousness to get you by for the day. He's like, here's an infinite amount of righteousness. But in that moment, when we put our trust and faith in him, we get a relationship with him. We are reconciled to God. What we also receive in that moment is we receive the gift of contentment. So we're not stuck trying to find it. You literally, as a Christian, you have it. That's what Paul is trying to tell you. It's a gift that you have. What does it look like? On a day to day, it is taking hold of what is mine and what I have with the Father and learning to find contentment there and not in anything I do. This is the only thing I can try to tell you to try to change what we understand is yes, Paul goes on to use a verb and he does that in 2 Corinthians. He says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. He's saying He's able to make you content. So here's what Paul is saying, and here's what we need to hear, is when I receive a relationship with Jesus Christ, I receive the gift of contentment. When you are one in Christ, you are given contentment. You take possession of it. It is a part of who you are in Christ. It is a part of what you have in your relationship with the Father. It's not part of something that you seek out to find and gain and get hold of. It's something, it's a gift that you have. You're content, but here's what you have to do. You have to train yourself to see and understand this is that now since I have the greatest source of contentment found in my relationship with God the Father, then what I can do is I can start to find contentment in the everyday ordinariness of life. I can start to find contentment in what I'm doing every day. I can start to find contentment, in, do, as he said, doing laundry and folding clothes and doing everything I do. Why? I can find contentment in the emotional state that I'm in. I can find contentment in my job where I'm at in school. I can find contentment in all these areas. Why? Because I'm not grabbing hold of all these things to give myself contentment and to try and find something. It's because I already have the gift of contentment. It's mine. Amen? Here's the application. So short, so simple, so easy. Mark 9.24 is a story about a father pleading with Jesus. And if the worship team wants to go ahead and head up, you guys can start heading up now. It is a story that ends with a man pleading for his son. That's what's going on, is this man is pleading for his son's life to spare him. Do you know what the father says to Jesus? It's beautiful. He says this, and it should be our prayer. I believe, help me with my unbelief. In a sense, that's our daily prayer this week is that I believe that you've given me the gift of contentment. You haven't left out something for me, my relationship with you. I believe. I believe that the gospel is finished. I believe that I'm secure in Christ. I believe that the full sufficiency of Christ's righteousness has been supplied for me. I believe that you have given me all this. Help me with my unbelief. In other words, he's saying, I believe, I just struggle to actually believe it. Help me. Our prayer this week can be that. I believe you've given me the the gift of contentment. Help me with my unbelief.